This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 124. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. And now, more than any other time, now is still a time to stay vigilant. I'm recording this from the beach on vacation with my family. But the shows are going to keep coming all summer long. We're going to continue to bring you a best of, some of the best conversations of our best episodes over the last two years on Angry Americans and Independent Americans. Summer is in full swing. The heat is here. The Milwaukee Bucks have won the NBA championships. And the Olympics are starting in Tokyo. It's still summer. And we want to continue to flash back with some of the best conversations and guests from the last two years of inspiring, impactful shows. In this episode, we're going to flash back to five incredible, iconic American leaders from the military and from politics who will share with you their leadership lessons. You'll hear from Ambassador Susan Rice, General Barry McCaffrey, General Mark Hurtling, Admiral James Stravides, and former Secretary of Defense and Senator Chuck Hagel. It's a summer buffet of leadership lessons from some of the most important, iconic leaders of our time. I was privileged to sit down with every one of these men and women, and I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. Whether you're on the beach yourself like I am, if you're out for a run, if you're on vacation, or you're just on a long summer drive. I hope these conversation vignettes bring you the righteous five eyes to carry you through the dog days of summer. It's a dose of independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. Whoever you are, wherever you are, thanks for continuing to support independent Americans and righteous media. I hope you're having a great summer. Tune in for more great episodes, and we'll have new episodes again coming soon. Go to independentamericans.us to get yourself some summer gear. You can rock an independent American's hat, shirt, or coffee mug on your beach, in your backyard, at your barbecue, or if you're still at work. I hope you continue to enjoy your summer and these great conversations. And even when we're enjoying the summer and flashing back, stay vigilant, America. Here it is, some of my favorite pieces of some of my favorite conversations of the last few years. Stay vigilant out there and get to the beach if you can. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Ambassador Susan Rice, 
So can you talk about what that part of his experience in particular, a lot of our audience is made up of veterans, first responders, folks who are personally connected, some who may be serving overseas right now. But as a young person growing up, can you talk about how that experience of his in particular shaped your values and your worldview? Yeah, well, I was extremely blessed to have two incredible parents who came from equally uh, unusual and, and powerful families. My mother was the daughter of immigrants who came from Jamaica to Portland, Maine in 1912, and they had no education and, uh, and just menial skills. My grandfather was a janitor, my grandmother was a maid, and they worked and saved and sent all five of their kids to college, and they all became successful professionals. My dad's family were the descendants of slaves from South Carolina, uh, and my great-grandfather, uh, who was a slave himself, uh, fought in the Union Army uh, during the Civil War and then got a, uh, an education. Remarkably, it's a long story, which I tell in the book, about how he ended up getting, in fact, a college degree, having been a slave, and how he started a school in New Jersey called the Bordentown School that educated generations of African Americans from the late 1880s until the 1950s. And then, you know, two generations later, along comes my dad. He was born in 1920 or thereabouts in South Carolina. And that was in the heart of segregation and Jim Crow and when lynching was at its peak in the Deep South. And he, uh, he lost his father at a very early age. He was sort of, uh, in some ways, rudderless. Um, he ended up getting to go to college himself at an early age in New York City, here at City College of New York, uh, where he got his um, his BA and his MBA. And then he was drafted into World War II. And he was initially sent to train at this fancy new program at Harvard uh, to teach statistical control. And uh, And then he was sent eventually to Tuskegee, where he was... The, um, the lieutenant in, in charge and eventually the captain in charge of that office of statistical control that had been newly created to give commanders the, the data of, the, of such as it was back then to be more effective in the war effort. And so he was part of the, the crew of, of Tuskegee Airmen. And as much as he was proud to serve and believed till he died extremely deeply in America... He was also very resentful of that experience in a number of ways because here he was, an African-American man in a segregated military. When he went off base to try to get something to eat, he couldn't be served in the restaurants, but he saw German POWs getting served. And when, you know, we now look back on the Tuskegee Airmen and celebrate their success as a great demonstration of African-American fighting and flying prowess, my dad's view was African-Americans shouldn't have to prove to anybody that we're as capable as the next person. That should be obvious. And so he really resented this duality of fighting for the freedom of everybody but his own people. After the war, uh, he went on to get his PhD in economics at Berkeley and after having real difficulty as an African-American man in the 1950s getting a job in 
as a professor of economics or in the private sector, he finally got a job, his first job, which launched his career at Cornell as an assistant professor of economics, but only because they didn't know until he got there that he was black. And they didn't put him out when he showed up. But my dad really, really wrestled all through his life with these, this question of how do you be a black man in America in those times with great intellect and great ambition, and yet everywhere he turned, he was told he didn't belong or he couldn't or that the doors were closed. And as time went on and the doors began to open just a little bit, how do you deal with the psychological baggage of segregation? And what he realized at some point in his sort of early to mid-career was that he couldn't carry that freight of the outside world's prejudice and function to his capacity. He realized that prejudice bigotry was really to a large extent the function of the bigot's own insecurity. And the only, if he couldn't control the barriers that he would come across, he could control how he thought about himself. And he could either let the bigot's definition of himself become his own or to reject that and realize that, yes, I, I know I'm good. I know I have worth. I've got to believe in myself. And he finally came to the view that, which he often repeated, if my being black is going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem for somebody else, not for me. And that was the mindset that he had to train himself. It's almost like, you know, muscle, you know, weightlifting to build your muscles, except this is a mental muscle, a psychological muscle. Um, and that's what he taught me and my younger brother, that we had to believe in ourselves, that we couldn't let other people define us for us. And then as many people who would tell us that we can't or we shouldn't or we don't belong, we couldn't let that become our own self-perception. And it was an incredibly powerful set of lessons he taught us. And there were many more, a number of which are in the book, that only some of which have to do with race, many just on how to live and what to prioritize. But my dad was a wise man. You can feel that wisdom throughout the book and your mother's wisdom as well. And But I, I, I want to jump around a bit. In the book and in, in all of your recent um, appearances, you know, you've, you've warned powerfully about the threat to our country uh, presented by our own division, right? And how the Russians win every time we rip each other apart, right? Absolutely. I, I use the hashtag, our enemies are celebrating. And every time they see us ripping ourselves apart, specifically around racial lines, they're celebrating. But given that context and given the history, if you know, what is your prescription? What should we do? The military obviously presents an option for people to come together from all backgrounds, you know, my grandfather served in the same military that your father did, and he had immigrated here from Europe, and they were forced to be together. Right? After the war. After the war, right? And there was, a, there was a sense of unity, at least in, in recent generations, that the military can be a place, maybe the only place, where we are kind of forced to get along. But what is your view on what we should do? How do we tackle that if it's the number one strategic threat? How do we devise a plan to tackle it? Well, I do say and I, I mean it very seriously, that our domestic political divisions are, in my judgment, our greatest national security vulnerability. Not only do they keep us from getting essential things done, like basic stuff, like building infrastructure and, and competing, therefore, effectively with the Chinese or whoever our 
um, our 21st century uh, competitors. But as you also said, it, it enables our adversaries, particularly the Russians, uh, to work both sides of every divisive issue as they're doing every day on social media. Not just interfering in our elections every two years, but actually every day of the week, pitting us against each other, whether on race or guns uh, or immigration or gay rights or you name it. They pick all the issues and they play on both sides. And their simple aim is to make us distrust and hate each other. And if they do that, if we, we fail to believe in, you know, the veracity of our institutions or the integrity of them or the, the or we can't agree on what's fact, then we will gradually defeat ourselves from within. And the Russians will be able to accomplish their goals against us without ever firing a bullet. So we've got to seize this moment and recognize how urgent it is. And when it comes to prescriptions, I talk about a number of steps that we can take uh, in the last chapter of the book. And they range from how we educate our children First of all, we don't even teach civics education anymore. So most kids don't know what it means to have a separation of powers or what the responsibility of the various branches are or you know what the First Amendment actually says and doesn't say. It doesn't say that you can say anything unless it offends me, right? And, and yet, whether in elementary school or on college campuses, there's a real confusion and distortion about how we speak to each other, what's allowed, what's acceptable, how we engage, and how we can learn from each other. And I also think there are many, many issues with our electoral system, and I talk about things we can do, you know, from ranked choice voting to taking out, reducing the role of money, etc. But I think on the grand scale, and it draws very directly on the experience of the military, I think that we need to consider very seriously mandatory national civilian service. If everybody 18 to 22, whether you're you know, a citizen or a resident, spent six to 12 months living together, working together, cooperating on projects that serve the common good. I don't care whether we're talking about rehabilitating inner city schools or reforestation or laying broadband. The fact of people from vastly different backgrounds and different, you know, zip codes and religious experiences and races and socioeconomic status, having to live and work together would mean that we have to know each other. And it's not optional. You don't get to opt out if you're a rich kid. And the purpose of that is very simple. I think it's really hard to hate each other if we actually know one another. And uh, I realize that that's a radical idea that is costly and would undoubtedly be challenged in court. But I do think it's the kind of thing we have to really seriously contemplate if we're going to reform the bonds that are necessary to hold us together. And by the way, I write also in the book that before everybody gives up and is completely despairing, we've been through so much worse than this before as a nation in terms of our divisions. And we've been through a civil war. We've been through reconstruction and the aftermath, the backlash to reconstruction. We've been through two world wars and McCarthyism. 
Vietnam and the civil rights era where people were being shot on campuses and cities were burning down and people who looked like me had dogs and hoses turned on them. We've been through Watergate and came out of all of those very difficult periods, much more difficult periods, sometimes violent periods, arguably stronger and certainly whole. So we can do this. We just have to have the will and recognize that this is one of those moments that's calling us to do some extraordinary things to maintain the integrity of our, of our democracy and the unity of our nation. I don't, I don't think the mandatory service idea is as radical as it used to be. I feel like, ma'am, in the last couple of years especially, there's a groundswell of people who are recognizing the need for something. Right to bring us together and create some level of, of cohesion, and and I think even within the veterans community, it's interesting to see the the tide start to shift in part because the military has burdened so much of that load disproportionately. So most folks are absolutely watching the Grammys, and a lot of folks are in Afghanistan for the right. tenth time. So that I I think I want I just want to say that it's something that I've supported, especially when we think about the escalation of conflict with places like Iran. If there was some kind of at least threat of a social backstop, some kind of connectivity, it would change the landscape across the country immediately and forever. So it was interesting to see when the Iran stuff was in the news, what seems like ancient history, two weeks ago, right? <laughs> yes. And World War Three was trending on Twitter because young people were freaking out. The Selective Service website crashes because so many 18-year-olds are wondering if they can get drafted. But there's an environment where I just, I want to make sure that it's said, at least on my behalf, I don't think it's so radical anymore. I think it's more and more necessary. And, and your voice is critical in helping shape that up. When I thought about joining the military, I really thought Marine Corps or Peace Corps. Like it wasn't that different for me on a value set. And I think that that is, is rising within this country. But I want to go back to when you grew up. Because you you were in, in a number of different environments, sports being one of them, where you came together with people from different backgrounds. Your leadership was significant and, and constant throughout that. But you you come from D.C. Um, I'm sure that at one point I, I read that you had uh, aspirations of becoming a senator from D.C. Well, I had aspirations for becoming a senator when I, when I was beginning at the age of 10. But I realized even back then that unless and until D.C., had voting representation in Congress, which of course it still doesn't have. Which you, which you would support? Oh, totally. So I'm, I'm a passionate. The round supporter of applause coming from DC, right? Now. <laughs> passionate supporter of DC voting representation and even statehood. But we could get there short of statehood if we had full voting representation in the House and the Senate. But anyway, that's not happened, and it's unlikely to happen in the rest of my lifetime. And uh, and. Beyond that, I got older and realized that on lots of levels in terms of my temperament and uh, where I was in my life, that as much as I wanted to be involved in policy, I didn't really want to get into electoral politics. And that was then. I haven't ruled it out in the future, but that's now an older. I'm glad you got to that because I was, I was, I was, I was, I was going to ask and I'll come back to it. General Barry McCaffrey. Look, I think if you step back from it, you know, I've spent a lot of time overseas, uh, Europe, the Far East, you name it. And the one thing the international community has always given us 
Uh, as a matter of respect, there are two things I used to tell, tell that in NATO uh, they would agree to. One is we're great organizers. Mm. We can organize anything. I mean, World War II, we went from a rural introverted society to global domination in the space of three, three years. Uh, and the second thing is the international community would always say, we can trust these people. They're not as well-educated as our German and French and Italian and Brit compadres, and they got enormous wealth. But, but when they tell you they'll do something, they'll do it. And I think both of those are in doubt now. I'm just astonished at our inability to address big problems, but problems that aren't all that complex, protecting the border and yet treating the vital economic contributions of the immigrant Central American Mexican population with dignity and figuring out some way to let them cross the border and send their money home legally and be protected by OSHA and minimum wage. And uh, we can't organize anything at a national level. Business, fortunately, still works real good. Uh, and then I think the other thing is, uh, our, one of our challenges is people don't trust us anymore in the international community. And inside the country, uh, I think Mr. Trump has found fissures that were there, cultural, political, economic, uh, some of them real. Occasionally, he comes up with good ideas, strong military, protect our borders, protect American manufacturing, but he can't get anything done. He's got no character. So I actually think, you know, the country is sound. Uh, 325 million hardworking people uh, in your day-to-day life in this country, you don't run into people that almost ever that you don't respect. They tell you they're going to do something, you can trust their word. I think we're in trouble. So I think what I welcome, you know, I know um, Mr. Biden fairly well, uh, and he's a civil, decent, family-oriented guy with enormous experience. All he's got to do is step in and start acting in accordance with American values. And I think we're going to be far better off. Mm. I, I, I always appreciate your candor. You're, you're a no bullshit guy, um, but you always can see, you know, the, the road ahead and see what's up on, 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 on in the future. And I think folks need to hear that right now because it feels stressful. It feels chaotic. You know, a, a lot of folks celebrated the election and, and maybe had, you know, 24 hours to enjoy a result. And then reality comes back in that we're still facing some huge challenges as a country. Um, I hope that Mr. Biden is reaching out to you on a regular basis and, and seeking your counsel or at least watching you uh, on television. But can you break down your thoughts on the election? What did it show us about our country? What uh, opportunities and challenges uh, does it present? Well, well, I tell you, you know, I always the most prized asset in military leaders is objectivity. I mean, what you're hoping for is somebody that looks at the situation, looks at the facts, and makes some common sense decision. And um, and and that has been uh, that has been lacking. I think the biggest fear I have is that the country is so divided, so angry. But I, it's hard for me to understand how anyone 
could support Mr. Trump because of his fundamental lack of integrity and character. He's a bully. He's impulsive. He's ignorant. Uh, he's a, he acts in a racist manner. Whether he's a racist is another thing. Uh, he, you know, he uh, can't be trusted with his own team. I mean, I can't imagine a worse leadership environment than working for this guy. So it's it just been appalling. And But 70 million Americans looked at this situation and said, for one reason or another, we're voting for this guy. I think part of the challenge to Mr. Biden, never mind the Democratic Party, which is in disarray, Republican Party's gone. Now Trump is cult. They better listen to why do blue collar workers and, you know, those derogatory term, those that are college education, why are they voting for Trump? And even worse, in my impression, why did the majority of white folk vote for Mr. Trump? Uh, we are a multiracial society. Uh, that's good, not bad. Uh, and But I don't want to see us get divided where race and ethnicity uh, are the, or for that matter, or political affiliation. I actually don't have any predisposition to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. I've never uh, signed up for either one, trying to remain objective. But here we are in one hell of a mess, similar to 1860. Hmm. And now we better find a way to come together and start common sense decision making and listen to each other. Sir, can you talk about 1860? Can you build on that? Can you explain to us what you see as the parallels here? Well, I think the parallel is, uh, you know, some of the the polling data is just unnerving. It's chilling. Uh, You know, I read, try and read uh, four newspapers every day. And uh, the little little insights you get from good reporting are just amazing. The Trump supporter says, as far as he's concerned, if Trump wanted to be in, stay in office for 50 years and hand it to his children in turn, that would be OK. Hmm. Wow. You know, I, I've been sort of talking about Mr. Trump being a unfunny Mussolini. Hmm. And, but that's bordering into a mass cult, dangerous political behavior. So. You know, again, I think there's some things to be concerned about. I've got friends who I trust and value. They're educated people. And they'll, it's like an alternative universe talking about why to support Trump. So again, in comes Mr. Biden, this terribly sharp uh, Kamala Harris, and they better reach out and listen to these people. One of the worst things I saw in politics was during the primaries when Beto O'Rourke uh, we've got a pretty face and a lot of energy and very uh, verbal guy uh, stood there and there was some kind of interview going on. And he's and he's some reporter asked him a provocative question. And he said, where's the effect? You bet your life. We're coming to get your guns. Right. Oh, my God. Right. right. First of all, he's not going to we're not taking guns away from Americans. We're not going to be Australia or the U.K. Uh, baked into our DNA. But this is a kind of opening salvo that further cements anger and divisiveness instead of saying, 
guns is an issue. We got a terrible murder rate compared to most civilized countries. So we need things like, you know, uh, ID check uh, for criminal behavior and a part of everybody buys a gun for any reason. And we need to modify our rules. So we try and get the semi-automatic or automatic bump stock weapons. So there's a lot of things you can do, but you don't start off by saying we're going to take the guns away from hunters in Texas. You're just asking for a severe confrontation. Hmm. So, uh, so, sir, I want to I build on that uh, in a way that I think you're in a unique position to do. Um, I have said that there are some parallels that I see right now, and I know it may feel like an extreme example, to what happened in Iraq after Saddam went down. And there was an, a, a structure and a system that was empowered and supportive of Trump, of, of, of Saddam, and the things that were around him. And then we came in and famously debathified the country. When I was there, Bremer and others you know, essentially fired uh, thousands of angry, loyal people with guns and didn't give them an alternative in the future. And those people became the foundation of the insurgency that I and so many others had to fight and still you know, sprawls today. I feel like Biden needs to be very clear in presenting an alternative and, and a part of the future to exactly those people you're talking about that are sparked by Beto O'Rourke, the people who feel like maybe the Democrats are coming for their guns and maybe they feel like uh, like socialism is coming and they're scared and they're angry and they're organized uh, and they want to be a part of the future. And I've said you can't you know, all the Trump supporters aren't just going to go away any more than you can kill away all the terrorists. And, I, and they're different. I know that. But I think we saw an example of if you don't give people an alternative, it will result in very bad domestic national security issues. And that's what one of the many things I'm concerned about right now is the small violence, the angry folks that feel like they don't have a part in this future. Can you can you talk about what you see in relation to that? What can Biden do and say specifically to Trump supporters? And, and where do you see that on the priority list as we look at a very tumultuous two months of a lame duck and likely a volatile couple of months in, in the early part of next year? Yeah. Well, by the way, I couldn't agree with you more about the, the history lesson out of Iraq. That was just astonishing, basic, fundamental lack of uh, judgment. And uh and it it ended up with thousands of U.S. soldiers getting killed, Marines getting killed and wounded because uh, Mr. Bremer and, and Rumsfeld, oh, my God, what a terrible man. Uh, what an arrogant person, incapable of listening to other viewpoints uh, with a group of advisors around them that were, uh, again, high IQ and no judgment. The, you know, the old, the old saying, they knew the price of everything, but the value of nothing. Hmm. And uh, so we ended up in this mess. And you you can't take apart the institutions of a society. My dad used to fought in Italy in World War Two. Wonderful soldier. And he fought in Korea and Vietnam. And but in Italy, he said, you know, the last days of the war is division. The 90 famous 92nd Infantry Division, African-American, pulls up into Milan. And he said the uh, the, the locals had risen up and they locked up all the Milan police officers. And so for three days, they were settling scores all over the city, murdering people. And finally, he said his division commander said, let the cops out, tell them to get back on the beat. So you, you simply can't evaporate the, 
the structure of a society and not expect that the bad guys will come out on top. Uh, now, I think we've got a worse problem than violence. Uh, the election, to my delight and against my fears, was largely peaceful all over America. General Mark Hurtling. Well, what, what I think we've unfortunately done, Paul, is we've replaced uh, our social contract, uh, our, our efforts to contribute to the society with this individual feeling of freedom uh, and, and, and this requirement to have freedom and murka and all this other stuff and, and individual freedom as opposed to a social contract which contributes to everyone. In, in working with the healthcare organization I'm, I'm with, you know, we started seeing some clusters of this in February. It started to ramp up in March and, and we were scared to death. I mean, there was some high anxiety within the healthcare with our trend lines and our modeling in where it would go and where it would take our hospital. Now, Orlando hasn't been hit as hard as the southern cities within Florida, but the state as a whole has not done well. Uh, the healthcare organizations have struggled across the, st- the state, and it's primarily because they've been overwhelmed. Uh, we have been able to, to, to get the supplies, to work the logistics, to build teams of different doctors and be ready for it. But there's been this tidal wave uh, on a couple of occasions of patients. And I think anyone who says, hey, I don't have to wear a mask, I don't have to social distance, I wish I could take all of those people for 10 minutes into one of our emergency rooms or into one of our ICUs and let them see what is going on because it is it is bad. Now, it's not as bad, again, I say this, it's not as bad in our system than it is in some of our sisters' organizations. But, you know, we just posted the highest death rate yesterday from what I understand, and I'm watching the trend lines every day. It's not good. Mm-hmm. And we haven't started school yet. Uh, that's going to be another problem area, I think. Uh, and anyone who says it's not going to be just doesn't understand the science of disease. Well, I, I made the big mistake early on in this of rereading a book I read about six years ago called The Great Influenza. Mm. And if, if you haven't read that about the 1918, not the 1917 pandemic, but the 1918 pandemic, it scares the bejesus out of you because we're experiencing exactly the same kind of things today. And yet we're not taking the precautions to try and end it as, as best we should as a nation. Sir, you know, I, I've made the case that this is a national security imperative. And, and I don't think that most Americans are thinking about it that way. I, right. I want to talk about Russia with you, of course. I want to talk about other national security threats. But in many ways, our back door is wide open, right? Our, our medical systems are overwhelmed. Our, our people are demoralized. Our military is occupied. And this is, in, in many ways, a dream for our enemies. So I've often used the hashtag, you know, our, our enemies are celebrating. And in the context of a great fight, it requires sacrifice. So when I hear that, you know, we have to give up college football, yeah, that sucks. But if it means our national security, it's necessary, right? If we've got to do these things in support of our national security, I believe it's necessary. But can you frame this up in the context of our overall national security? In your view, how vulnerable are we and where should we prioritize the pandemic versus Russia, North Korea, other threats? I'm very surprised, uh, that we haven't been taken advantage of as much as some could as of yet. I, I put it in the context, Paul, of, of the elements of power 
You know, when you talk about national security and the elements of power, the first things that come to your mind, the so-called dime model, the diplomacy, information, military, and economics. Okay, get away from that and think about more elements of power. Your reputation on the world stage, your, your observation as being a nation that can actually get things accomplished. Your uh, other nations looking at you and viewing you as a society where people come together and solve problems and collaborate. In every one of those areas that are elements of national security, the way we are seen on the world stage, it's deteriorated over the last six months. We're seen as the class clowns right now. Uh, we are not doing well with the pandemic. And every nation in the world is watching us and they can't believe their eyes because. We're the nation that put a man on the moon, and yet we're the worst in terms of dealing with a, with a health issue. And then you add to that the, the advertisement of where we stand on PPE, that the early stages of PPE, how we're you know, misjudging the, the scientists and, and countering their actions with opinions. It just, it's amazing uh, from my standpoint, having lived around the world, I know because I've talked to former colleagues in other countries, and, and they're asking me, what the hell is going on in your country? So, yeah, that's just the reputational piece of it. Then when you talk about the ability of the military to react, the ability of the diplomatic corps to do the things they need to do when a great number of our embassies are not staffed with ambassadors, when our State Department is bleeding talent, when our military is being used in some ways that, that don't seem to be in line with our constitutional norms, all of those things should scare the heck out of us because they are also being reflected on the world stage. And it's not a good look in the mirror of the United States. Sir, one issue that I know you want to talk about and I've been covering that I don't think has gotten nearly enough national attention is the withdrawal of our Troops in Germany, thousands of troops that have been pulled out under Trump's direction, um, you know, supported by the, now the Secretary of Defense. In my view, it's a gift to, to Putin. I think we continue to do things that, 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 that play to the advantage of Putin and others and other enemies who would like to see our forces shift in the way they are. But can you break down that uh, move particularly? Uh, you know, what's happening in Europe, what's happening in Germany? And for people who don't track on military affairs on a regular basis, you know, in the larger context, how does that change to our posture affect our overall strength and, and security? And does it play into the hands of Putin and our enemies? Yeah, I, I really actually believe it does play right into Putin's hands, but it also further divides uh, an alliance that we spent 70 years building and has some incredible strengths to it. And it was an action in my view. I'll, I'll state my opinion on this uh, from a military perspective. You know, Paul, I spent uh, eight of my last 10 years in the service in Europe uh, in various roles. The final role is the commander of U.S. forces in Europe. And during that time, we structured the force organization uh, with a great deal of work and brain power and coordination to meet the requirements of a force that is overseas to meet myriad contingencies, build alliances, and contribute to our security. So I, I guess the first thing I should have done for any of your listeners who think uh, that U.S. forces are in Europe to defend Germany against Russia, that ended about 30 years ago. We are no longer on a defensive position to defend Europe or to defend Germany or any other country. We're part of a security alliance. Number two, for any of your listeners who are saying, well, they're not paying their own way. 
Well, that's not quite true either. They don't pay to a bank account. They promise to pay a certain amount of their GDP for, for security. Some of them can improve that way, and they're heading in that direction with the primary goal of meeting the 2% of GDP by the year 2024. So they still have four years to do that. And when this first started in 2014 with Secretary Gates saying that this should be a, a NATO objective, and most nations in Europe have come back and said, you guys in the United States have to understand, we normally plan a five-year budget cycle. So we can't just do it next year. It's going to take us a while to get to this point. So with the president now announcing, oh, in the last year in 2019, uh, there's been more donated to Europe since I've been in office than anybody else. That's because it's the end of that five-year budget cycle that they promised in 2014. So it's just, you, you got to, and you know this, you've got to put a little bit more brain power and analysis into what's going on. Our forces in Europe give the United States gives gives the United States much more of a strategic advantage than pulling them out this. Uh, and we could go into the different dynamics of that and what what they provide to the United States for our national security, but people aren't willing to listen to that. Uh, and, and because people don't even know what we have in Europe. We've we've gone from 30,000, excuse me, 300,000 forces during the Cold War to 90,000 during the 1990s after Desert Storm and the wall coming down to about 30,000 U.S. Army soldiers there that are designed to do the kinds of contingencies like what happened last week. I mean, the the explosion in Lebanon, uh, that is a contingency operation for U.S. forces in Europe. When you don't have forces there, you can't help a nation that has some kind of a humanitarian disaster like that. I'm sorry, I, I tend to get emotional about this because I can't believe how dumb we are as a nation that we can't see through some of the arguments that are being presented on this particular issue. I, I share your emotion. And I think it, it's because we're paying attention. That's kind of one of the themes of this show, right? And, yeah. and I wonder, you know, people don't really consider it as a strategic lily pad. Right. Like it's not just about uh, the right. Germans paying their It's basically like them saying, hey, you can have a part of our backyard to set up your tent. Right. And, and that's what we've been doing for generations now. But can right. you talk specifically another issue in the news, you know, related to that region was is what's happening in Belarus right now. Right. Um, can you break down for folks what's happening in Belarus and why is it important to the U.S.? Well, they have had a president there by the name of Lukashenko. Uh, who has been an authoritarian dictator for the last 26 years. Uh, of the 49 countries that are in Europe that were part of my area of operations when I was the commander of U.S. Force, U.S. Army forces in, in Europe, uh, this was one of the 49 nations I never got to. Uh, I never traveled to Minsk. I went to all the other ones one or two or three or a dozen times been to Poland probably a dozen times, but this was one country we didn't go to because it was still using the Soviet model, even though they were no longer a Soviet satellite. And Lukashenko is, he's a dictator, you know, a, a dictatorial ruler. Uh, he was challenged by a, a group of, of uh, uh, progressives, one of which is Tinka Shitskaya. I can't, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing her name right. Um, and the vote count that came out of the elections last week were just ludicrous. Uh, he received something like 79% of the vote in, in terms of the publication afterwards, whereas there were literally millions of people marching against him. So the people in, in Belarus knew that it was a fixed election. 
Uh, election monitors were not allowed in the country. The press was not allowed in the country during uh, the election. So it was just a sham. And now what's happening, what we're seeing is a typical authoritarian reaction to protest of what was a fixed election. Uh, and I think it's another, it's going to be another, um, I wouldn't call it as much as the, uh, as the Arab Spring, but it certainly could cause a great deal of turbulence in Belarus and potentially backlash into Russia. And it seems like the kind of thing, if we had a, uh, a focused commander in chief and we had a, a you know, a, a healthy functioning, uh, state department apparatus and, you know, coordination of, of all of our resources, it seems like the kind of thing we should be focused on as a nation, right? Because it can or how, be. Or how about even an ambassador yeah. in the country? That, that would be a good first start. Yeah. We don't have an ambassador in Belarus. Hell, we now don't even have an ambassador in Germany. Uh, and, and I could name the other countries in Europe where, there, where the charge is in charge. Uh, and most of the other ones, I mean, that, that's the communication piece and the information piece of national security policy and the diplomacy piece mixed in. And it's not happening. So, yeah, you're talking about the focus of President Trump. I, I'm not sure um, there is a focus anywhere. Uh, specifically, other than on the elections. I, I think that's right. And I, I want to come back to your thoughts on the election in a minute, but sticking with expanding this discussion, you know, talking about Russia in particular, in my view, you know, there's been this this mantra that they meddled with our elections. I, in my view, they attacked our elections. I would argue it's potentially an act of war. Like this is a very dynamic situation that hasn't ended. It's expanded. You know, Belarus is another symptom of that, our withdrawal of German forces in Germany. And now we've got another election coming that the Russians would love to see rip us apart, but can you give us your most updated assessment of the threat from Russia and how you think uh, the, the incoming commander-in-chief or if Trump is reelected, how they should respond to Russia? Yeah, well, what I'd say is I, I certainly am not privy to any classified documents today. The last one I read was in 2013. And at the time, we were seeing from about 20, 2006 until about 20. 12, when I left, or 13, there was an increasing dynamic by Mr. Putin to influence uh, not only the democratic institutions in various countries, but also put a wedge between the United States and all of our NATO partners. And whether he did that directly against us or individual partners writ large, he was going to do it. We have seen that happen in places like Moldova, Montenegro, Estonia in 2007. And I'll use that as an example because Estonia was attacked vehemently in their 2007 elections where a lot of their cybersecurity forces were undercut. They reacted to it. And over the last four, five, six, seven years, they have fixed it where they are doing so many things electronically with safeguarded systems that they are now kiddingly called e-Sonia as opposed to, you know, like email or, e, you know, and, and it's fascinating that they address the issue. We have not. And I agree with you that in 2016 and even before we were attacked by Russia, the evidence is pretty clear on that in various uh, national security and intelligence processes that have shown how we've been attacked. And I think it's going to be worse this time around. And yet it, that fire is being stoked by the current administration and being helped along, as we've seen recently, by several of our 
of our elected uh, members of the Senate, which is just amazing to me. It is, uh, I think, an existential threat to our institutions and our society. So we should be defending against it. Admiral James Stravides. I'm so thankful to talk to you now at this moment in history. And you are one of the finest, you know, strategic thinkers of our time. Uh, you were a guy that, uh, you know, was rumored to be a VP uh, selection for uh, Secretary Clinton. You were my favorite choice. I, I wish that they had gone with you, quite frankly. I think it would have moved things in a very different direction. Um, but you're a leader that, that people look to globally for your strategic analysis. And I want to ask you, really, there's so many things to get into what's happening at the Pentagon with COVID, our global affairs, NATO, but at the, at the highest strategic level possible, and maybe from a historic perspective too, how do you frame up where we are as a nation right now? And, and what do you see to come in, in the near future, in the next six months or a year? Where are we and, and what do you see ahead on, on the seas that are ahead of us? Great question. Let, let, let's start with some perspective. Let's start with COVID, which is to say, yeah, we're in a terrible moment with COVID. 250,000 Americans are dead, millions infected. Let's go back 100 years ago. Spanish influenza hits the world. And listen to these numbers. Spanish influenza infected 40%, 40% of the world's population with a 20% mortality rate. So COVID is not going to infect 40% of the world's population, and the mortality rate is somewhere between 1% and 3%. So let's keep it in perspective. Every one of those deaths is a tragedy, but we've been here before, we, the human species. About every 100 to 200 years, a pandemic comes along, and we defeat it. And we're going to defeat this pandemic. We're going to prove our resiliency. We're going to get through it. So COVID. Let's continue to work as hard as we can to beat it, and we will, and these vaccines are going to be a plus, and we all have personal responsibility, skin in the game, wearing a mask, but let's keep it in perspective. Now let's step back and say, what is the position of the United States? So here, Paul, I, I'm not a declinist. I think the United States is still a vibrant, important nation that still has many centuries to go in its voyage. However, we are at a point, as we all recognize, where gridlock is really starting to grind us down. And, and by the way, before I talk about that for a moment, let me just make a point. I'm an absolutely a centrist. I'm a registered independent. I've never registered as a Democrat or a Republican, and I never will. Um, you are correct. I was vetted for vice president by Hillary Clinton. I was one of six people actually vetted by the campaign, and I was subsequently offered a cabinet post by Donald Trump. And I think of that, by the way, as two bullets kind of whizzing by my head. <laughs> but my point is, we are in a highly polarized world, and I want to say this to the audience as a centrist, as an independent, and here I'm talking to you, if you get up in the morning with Morning Joe and you wrap it up with Rachel Maddow at night, or you start on Fox and Friends in the morning with the people on the white couch, and you can't imagine a night where you haven't heard from Sean Hannity by the end of the evening, I'm talking to you. 
We are bigger than those divisions. We, this nation, all of us. And, you know, this show is called Angry Americans. I get angry at the gridlock. I get angry at the tone. I get angry at the incivility we show each other. And we have got to improve on that. And a logical question would be, well, okay, Admiral, so what do you what do you recommend? What can we do to try and overcome this kind of gridlock? Uh, point one, just like I mentioned about COVID, let's keep perspective, okay? And people are fond of saying we've never been more polarized than we are now. Really? Check out 1860 when we went into a civil war and killed a third of the adult population. More recently, check out 1968. I'd say we were more polarized, and I'm old enough to remember that as a young teenager, even than we are today. Um, We've been polarized before as Americans, so keep it in perspective, number one. Number two, I think we can help to overcome that polarization with something you talk about a lot, Paul, and I commend you for it, and that is the idea of service. And here, I'm not talking about simply, thank you for your service, Captain in the Army. Thank you for your service, Admiral, retired, you know, the military. I'm talking about thanking everyone in society who is serving. And there are a lot of ways to serve this country. How about our diplomats, our firefighters, our police officers? You just mentioned doctors and nurses on the front line of COVID. How about teachers? struggling to work through this pandemic, teaching a packed classroom in Western Florida and the Panhandle for $34,000 a year. You think they're serving the country? I do. All those people are serving the country. And service is bipartisan. Service is nonpartisan. And so my second point in overcoming this gridlock is let's celebrate service. And then third and finally, And you allude to it before. As voters, when we go to the ballot box, we need to look for candidates who are willing to overcome the gridlock. Candidates who articulate that they want to work with people on the other side. And there are plenty of them out there. Uh, Before uh, coming down here to Florida, I spent five years in Boston as the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. So I lived in Massachusetts, which is arguably our most left-wing state in the country, you know, the People's Republic of Massachusetts. I don't need to tell a graduate of Amherst College about Massachusetts. But who's the governor? A guy named Charlie Baker. He's a Republican in the most Democratic state in the country. Who are some other governors of Massachusetts? Mitt Romney, he's a Republican. William Weld, he's a Republican. My point is, there are political actors out there who are willing to reach across the aisle to work with others. And I think as voters, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or an independent like me, and like I I would guess you are, Paul, we need to find the the candidates who are willing to reach across the aisles. I'll, I'll conclude here. De Tocqueville, the great French philosopher and writer, came to America in the early 1800s to kind of observe this new phenomena of democracy. And he wrote a book called On Democracy. I'm sure you've read it. 
it's a largely laudatory book about democracy. But one of the most salient lines in the book is that the tragedy of democracy is that in the end, you elect the government you deserve. I think as voters, we need to take that to heart, act like we are the actual owners of this country, and find candidates who are willing to overcome the gridlock that I think is imprisoning us and has contributed to so many deaths under COVID. Sir, I'm glad you brought it back there because it's a central question that we've explored in the show. It's why I created Righteous Media. I felt like we needed a Fox News or an MSNBC for independence, for the unaffiliated. You know, we're, we're looking for options. And this is a country of, of people who now can have 5,000 options on Amazon if they want to buy a refrigerator, but they still have, for the most part, only two parties and oftentimes two candidates. As I am an independent, uh, as 40 plus percentage of the country and a growing percentage, it seems, are independent, are unaffiliated. What is the, you're a strategic thinker, what's, what's, the, what's the path for that, uh, for that community? What is our mechanism without a right now, you know, legitimate third party? Um, is there a space to create, you know, that third army, if you will, or that third community, that third movement? If you and maybe five other, you know, really uh, high level independents or unaffiliated folks got a team together, there are a lot of guys like me who'd be going to grab a jersey. So is there a space uh, for third-party candidates or third-party movement? And, and would you be a part of that in, in the leadership if, if it were to develop? Well, let's start with, again, perspective. People act like, and you are absolutely right in this regard, people act like, you know, somewhere in the Constitution, it says, and there will be two political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. Let's look at the history of the country. We've had a lot of political parties. We've had Whigs, Federalist, Nationalist, Progressive Party. By the way, that's not AOC. The Progressive Party was Teddy Roosevelt's party about 120 years ago at the beginning of the 20th century. So history tells us, yes, we can have additional or other political parties. And point two, I think we're headed there. Mm. And here, I think it's the millennials. And by the way, I have a almost unbounded respect for the millennial generation. You know, if you really look at the patterns and the demographics of American history, about every fifth generation turns out to be a so-called hero generation. The last one was, of course, the greatest generation, which was a great generation. I don't think they were the greatest. Um, maybe they were the greatest to that time. I'm not even sure of that. But I think the millennials that you and I know very, very well uh, and have served with them and, and you have walked those patrols with them in Iraq and I have commanded them in Iraq and Afghanistan and on ships at sea. These millennials, and I have two daughters who are millennials and two son-in-laws who are millennials. Boy, they are tired of the gridlock and they are angry. And I think there is space and the path to it is hard because these two parties have managed to build industrial level control mechanisms over the political process. But 
there are a number of efforts in progress um, that I think could overcome it over time, including uh, shifting the way uh, votes are counted, using mechanisms with second choice. Uh, You're very familiar, I'm sure, with all this. Um, There are a number of lawsuits um, against the debate commissions, which choke off um, third or fourth candidates with, I think, unrealistically high bars. Um, A model, a very interesting model to me would be to look at, and this sounds slightly absurd, but um, the model that is used in uh, You've Got Talent and open up a debate stage, um, not to 10 candidates who are Republicans, but let's get a mechanism that brings 10 distinguished Americans who are reasonable contenders to a stage. And let's have a debate format where every week one of them drops out. Um, You know, again, if you look at how the American public resonates to those shows, which are endemic, um, a process like that might be part of this. And um, in any event, Paul, I think this is a rich topic for conversation. I think your numbers are about right, which is to say 40 to 45 percent of Americans are kind of parked in the middle. And typically they're kind of center, center right on defense, cybersecurity. They want law and order. They're center, center left on most social issues. They want racial justice in the country. They want choice for women. And, you know, we can go back and forth on these things. But I think there's at least 40% of the country parked there maybe a little bit more. And then you have these two extreme ends of that spectrum, not bad people, strong believers, and they have their echo chambers at MSNBC on the one hand and Fox News on the other hand, kind of CNN grouped over here and OAN bubbling over, you know, um, we need to find a path to the center. It's going to require leadership, some resources, but I think it's a, it's an idea whose time is coming. Mm. I, I couldn't agree more. Former Secretary of Defense and Senator Chuck Hagel. You know, we need the unity and the calm and the patriotism that transcends party line. And you are a Republican. You signed on to this really unprecedented, historic, urgent op-ed with every other living Secretary of Defense. We've never seen anything like it, I think, in American history. And it's you on the same op-ed with Ash Carter, uh, with Mark Esper, who just left, also with Dick Cheney and Don Rumsfeld. I mean, this is is every living Secretary of Defense from very different political backgrounds together sounding the alarm, right? Or or, or maybe drawing a line, or I'll let you frame it. But uh, it, as the president hits every single guardrail, the guardrails seem to be holding for now, right? And we hope they'll hold for another couple weeks. But but why did you guys come together to say this? And how did it happen? Can you talk us through the mechanics of like, how do you and Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld and, mm-hmm. you know, you guys aren't, you know, quarantining together. How does, how does a big statement like this, you know, go around? Is there a quarterback or how does that come to the point where you, you unite in this very important way? Well, it, it came to me and I think it came to most of my uh, colleagues. I've not spoken to all of them. I've spoken to some of them in similar ways. It came to me uh, uh, from uh, two uh, former senior 
uh, Pentagon officials uh, who worked in the uh, in the Republican administrations, uh, Dove uh, Zakam and Eric Edelman, and then also they brought in Elliot uh, Cohen, and uh, they came to me with the idea, and uh, with the first draft of the op-ed. Then, then uh, I understand they wanted to go to the Cheney because they all had a relationship with Cheney. A lot of them would work with Cheney to see what Cheney thought of that, because Cheney and Rumsfeld are the two senior members of the of the former secretaries who've been around longer, who who were the, the longest, not longest serving, but were the, the, the senior, the, the ones who were in the most senior past administrations. And then uh, others started getting, Leon Panetta, other, others started getting calls. And that's, that's the way it started with me. And what did I think? Let us give you a draft so on and so on, what changes do you think we should make? That, that's how it started with me. I can't answer for the rest of my colleagues, but I think in the end, uh, what we all did agree on uh, very clearly uh, was the threat to this country that we saw. And the, the necessary, I, we thought, uh, comments in that we could make in an op-ed joining together about what is the role of the military. The military has no role in elections or electoral process. Uh, and also to reaffirm to all those in military uniform today, uh, don't forget your obligations, your responsibilities. You take an oath of office to the Constitution, not to a commander in chief, not to a party, not to a president. And don't forget that. I think also it was a message to the American people. Hmm. The, the citizens of this country must remember what our democracy says, that we are a uh, nation of laws. We follow that laws. If we don't like those laws, we have ways to change it, legal ways to change it. And, and I think it was all of that wrapped up into one thought that I think most of us all thought that probably was a good idea hmm. to post that op-ed. And also a unifying message, too, coming from 10 different people with different political philosophies, different political backgrounds, work for Democrats, work for Republicans. But if we could all join together, yeah. and, and maybe all 10 of us, based on our experiences, would have something to say that people could respect and listen to, maybe it was worthwhile. Hmm. It, w- it was really, uh, it, was, it was an example, I think, of what we need. And I, I could feel that you guys were talking to the troops, Right. You were talking to the folks to kind of cut through the Trump nonsense, cut through the news, have it in writing, have this, you know, formidable group. It's kind of like the Avengers or like, the, I don't know, the weirdest softball team on the planet. Right. Like the idea of the 10 of you together on a Slack channel or a Google Doc, like adding comments is pretty fascinating, but also, you know, underscores. Uh, the threat we have from this president who's busted all the norms, who's politicized our military. And, and I hope that unity will carry forward uh, in the next couple of months because I think we're, we're going to need it. We're going to need more people to speak out, especially Republicans um, and especially folks who've been quiet for a while, like Cheney, right? Everybody was surprised to see him, was surprised to see Rumsfeld. But that's how bad it's gotten. As it's this bad, I want to ask you, sir, many, especially folks that are disconnected from the military because of the civil military divide, are especially concerned about a general uh, now being nominated again to lead the Pentagon. So this is not happening in a vacuum, right? Uh, Biden has now nominated um, General Lloyd uh, to be uh, uh, the next secretary after we got an exemption for Mattis 
which hadn't been done since, you know, Marshall. Um, I'm concerned about it. And I know many veterans are concerned about it because we want a civilian who's had disconnected time and space. We don't want a rotating ship where they go out of the uniform and directly into the SECDEF position. You've been in that chair, um, but you were also, you know, a young enlisted guy in Vietnam. You weren't a four star. Can, can you tell me, uh, should, I, should I be less worried? Should we be less worried? Uh, and, and if so, why? Well, the points you make, Paul, are very relevant points and very important points. Um, I'll give you my, my take on this. I'll start with, with General Lloyd Austin first, the person, the military professional. Uh, I worked very closely with General Austin when I was at the Pentagon. He was a commander of, of Cent- Central Command, the, dip- the most difficult command of all because it's where all the hot spots are, right. other than North Korea. Uh, he is a true professional soldier. Uh, high quality, integrity, uh, decent man, good man, but right, right at the top of every general officer I ever worked with. Now, that said, and I, and I will support him, but that said, uh, I, I agree with you that I don't think that we should be uh, asking career military flag officers fairly soon out of the Pentagon, especially. Uh, to be the Secretary of Defense. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, but one is that job is a political job, Secretary of Defense. I mean, you, you don't need to know every component of the military, the Army and Marines. You got to know enough, but you got 950 admirals and generals that you can call upon and, and, and thousands of other top people. It's a political job because you've got to navigate in the Congress between the Republicans and Democrats, conservatives, liberals, the committees, armed services, appropriations, all have their ideas about what should happen, not happen. You've got the White House, the National Security uh, Council, always trying to overreach. I mean, uh, Bob Gates and Leon Panetta wrote books that mentioned both of that, the overreach. And I saw it. I mean, every president wants to reach into the Pentagon and get some control of the Pentagon. I don't think that's healthy. I think you've got to have an independent Pentagon because it's, it shouldn't be about politics. So you've got to know how to navigate all that. You've got your own internal politics. Each service is, a, is, a, is an empire, and, and you deal with all the politics inside that. You're dealing with the politics of the career uh, employees, the career Defense Department employees, which is a major force, and the media, and the media. Right. Uh, and you got to handle that right. The media needs to know what's going on, but they can't know everything, obviously. But you need to, you need to give them as much access as you can give them, uh, but not everything. So when you add all that up, plus managing the day-to-day operations of that place, the biggest enterprise in the world, um, I'm not sure the best training for that is 40 years in the Army or, or, or in the Marine Corps or, or anything else. And that's not degrading the great service and great leadership of these people. I know a lot of very, very senior military who doesn't think it's a good idea. And plus, then you add a new issue into the confirmation process. You go through a waiver. Now, there are some Democrats that have already said, we're not going to vote for the waiver, even though they're Democrats. Uh, I suspect he will uh, get uh, confirmed. Right, and you'll get the waiver, but that's just a needless debate that you don't have to have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think 
because we are in such dire need of leadership everywhere. The, the Pentagon, that institution has been decimated over the last four years of, of, of leadership, just ripped apart. Uh, look at it now. And uh, all our institutions in Washington have been. So I think it's really important that we get General Austin confirmed and give him an opportunity to do it. But And, and I'll support that. But in the end, I just don't think it's a it's wise to put a general or an admiral in that job. I, I so appreciate your perspective because you've seen all sides of this. And it's not a command, right? It's, it's no. a very political job. 